Yeah, whatever. I know you're not sibling, this is your last it name. Ah, but does that mean? <laughs> Unless you legally change your last name. Or yeah. you committed, committed identity fraud. Actually, his parents not legally adopted me. <laughs> oh, wow. He like, did that kidnap you? No. Did you ever get to see your real parents? Yeah, all the time. They were just here the other weekend. How did, how did we know that you didn't commit identity theft? I guess you just have to trust me. <laughs> I, I always get you guys mixed up, so I, want, I, so I call you small group group. Yeah, I know. Oh, Jim, music group. Mm. Real but that's like, that's group. small third name. That'll work. But that's That'll how work. I tell them apart. All right. No, his, uh, his parents, as you will find in your lives, people will invest in you in times that you need them to invest in you. And his parents took me in when I was just a single college guy, didn't have any believing parents and just kind of was floating around. They said, hey, come be a part of our family. So they gave me the name Hezekiah. My name is Hezekiah Drew Urban and uh, in their family. And what made you change your name? Now, what's the punchline here? I'll just share it with you while I get started. No punchlines. Just want to know if you knew that. We're adopted brothers. All right. There you go. That's a freebie. That's a freebie. Um, speaking of things that are more right than what I just, I mean, that's right culturally for us, but more right. Um, what is two plus two? Four. Okay, so you guys put my point exactly. There is a right answer to that math question. A, singular, correct answer. Those of you over there that said with innocent hearts and no sarcasm, four are right. Those of you that had sarcasm and humor thinking, look at me, you were wrong. Um, so, um, yeah, so that, that's, that's, that's how that works. Okay, I'll give you another one. I'll give you another one. Five plus five. Fifty-five. Again, same answers, but different people. More people gravitated to the right than the wrong side that time. So, but there's a right and a wrong. Yeah, there's a right and a wrong. Okay. Um, let's switch context away from math and maybe to your homes. Okay, oh, that so was a quick, that, that escalated quick. It did, didn't it? So, um, at your house, when the authority given to you by God, normally your parent, it could be an adopted parent or someone else that's there, like a babysitter at the time or whatever. Two old babysitters, probably Miss Craft. Um, but when they ask you to do something, what's the right answer? To do it. Yes. To do it. Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Sure. Happy to do so. Cheerful, immediate obedience. That's the right answer, right? Yes. He's made eye contact. It's pretty good. Though. We'll finish this later. Okay. Um, yeah, that's the right answer. So there are rights and wrongs in this world, like overt rights and wrongs. And we're going to see two rights, well, a right and a wrong tonight. When you find your ways to Matthew chapter 9, find your way to Matthew chapter 9. While you're turning there, we're looking at verses 9 to 13 tonight. While you're turning there, let's review a little bit, right? I only come in here once a month or so, once every month, so I like to know what you remember. Here's your review question. You can look at the preceding seven verses of chapter 9 or the headlines in chapter 8. Hint, that's where the answers are. So you can look there. What are the things that Jesus has shown that he has power of over? Yes. Forgiving sin. Forgiving sin, verse 7. Good. Nature. In what way? Weather? <laughs> yes, the weather. Good. Say it again. Everything plus nature. Everything, everything plus nature. Sure, you can go with the old omnipotent and it covers it all. Okay, yeah. Yes, Fox. Uh, the body. And specifically the? Uh, healing people. The physical, right? What happened to the paralytic? He 
he was healed. Not only was he healed, like but he, his he his sins were forgiven. And the other point that I'm trying to make is like he wasn't like slowly healed. He Instantaneous, complete and he healing. Stuff that, yes, not like false healings that might happen today. Yes. Wow. Demons. He has power of the demons. Yes, because he cast them out. He took it. See? That's why I pointed to both of you. You're both going to say the same one. Yes, okay. Thank you very much. He had power over the demons. Specifically, the one that was most recent was the demonic in the, in the, over in the Gadarenes, across the Sea of Galilee. Physical illness. Death with the centurion, right? He has power over them where the centurion says, I also am a man of authority. Behold, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Um, so he has power over that. The paralytic through the roof. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, what does Jesus teach like big idea this is this is the toughest one i've got you make it past this one your homes yes lost the beatitudes. the beatitudes yes he goes through those beatitudes and they were designed to show what what to, what to do what the right attitude with the right attitude to be the right attitude to be is and it was the idea of which level of righteousness was the good one like the righteousness of the Pharisees and like, hey, follow the letter of the law, but just on the external side or the, hey, be perfect like God is perfect side of righteousness. That one, that be perfect. <laughs> there it is. Matthew 5, 48. Yes. So uh, he knows those things. We also, he knows men's thoughts from verse, chapter 9, verse 4. And someone mentioned he has authority to forgive sins. Chapter 9, verse 7. That's where we get to today. Right. So this evening, we're going to look at chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Open your Bibles to there. We'll read it together. It says, as Jesus went on from there, the healing of the paralytic, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We're going to see the theme tonight is salvation is through Christ alone. And it always, always produces a contrite, repentant heart that is obedient. Every single time. Salvation is through Christ alone, and it always produces a repentant, obedient heart. Every single time. Let's pray and ask God's wisdom as we dive into his word. Lord, this is your word. Uh, Lord, help us to receive it as you have authored it. Uh, Lord, as you have inspired it. Every meaning, every word is inspired by you in this book written by the pen of Matthew. And uh, Lord, we are just in awe that we have your holy word that commands, instructs, and uh, lets us know who you are, what you care about, what your passions are, what your instructions are, how we should live before you. Lord, as we look at your word tonight and we see the obedience and the response of Matthew to the call of the gospel, and we also see the response of the Pharisees to the call of the gospel, Lord, help us to walk in line just like Matthew does, uh, with a full response to the gospel and a repentant and faithful heart that you give, and Lord, that leads to obedience in our lives as we learn more and more about your word. Lord, give us your wisdom 
Lord, Holy Spirit, come alongside of us and convict us of sin, cause us to repent of areas that we need to, uh, areas of sin in our lives. And Lord, give us the conviction and the strength to walk forward as you promise. Pray this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as we dive in, right, we talked about there's a right and there's a wrong. We're going to study two opposite reactions to the call of the gospel. The first reaction is going to be the effective call of the gospel, and the second reaction is going to be the errant call of the gospel. I should say that differently. The error of how you receive the gospel. So verse 9 is the effective call. It's where we're going to start. And I'll read it again. It's just get us our minds at it, right? Look at it. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. So it says, and he went on from there. It's the healing of the paralytic is where he's going on from, which means that we are in Galilee. We are in Capernaum, Jesus' headquarters. And I don't know the time between the healing and this event. It could have been just he's literally walking on from that event, or it could have been some time past. We don't know. But that's where he is. He's just healed the paralytic. That's what Matthew records for us. And the very next thing is Matthew's recording his own salvation. It's his testimony. So let's think about Matthew for a second. All right, so he sees Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. Who is this Matthew? You'll see in the other Gospels that he's called Levi. Sorry, rhetorical question. He, he's, um, he's called Levi. The name Matthew means gift of God. You can ask yourself, why two names? Right? Why two names? I don't know why two names. Sometimes Jesus gives them another name, like Simon and Peter, right? Sometimes it was just customary in the culture to be known as two names, like John and Mark. John Mark. Technically three if you had them all up, right? So... I don't know, but you'll see in scripture, it's the same person, Matthew, Levi, same one. In Matthew, he calls himself Matthew. The other gospel writers call him Levi, right? So what was he doing? Sitting in the tax collector's booth. Real question. What was the tax collector in the time of Israel? Yes. A Jew that works for the Romans, taking money in the way he earns money is by taking too much money. So they're basically corrupt and you don't want to associate with them because they're associated with... All the bad stuff. Fraternizers with the Romans who are your invaders. Yes. Nicely done, right? That was good, right? One sentence. Well, it was one breath. I don't know if it was one sentence, but it was definitely one breath. Right? Yeah, so so tax collectors were, is, were Jews, okay? Your countrymen, your fellow citizens, but they worked for the invaders, the Romans. They made a choice to work for the Romans, and not in just any way, but in a way that they collected taxes from you. Right? The way that they said, hey, you're trying to trade and make profits and whatever you make as a profit, I'm going to tax you on. And they didn't do it like we pay our taxes here in the States. They went above and beyond. There was a minimum required for Rome, which they did. But because they worked for the Romans, they were probably backed. They were backed by who to enforce their rules? Julius Caesar. The Roman military, not Julius himself, yeah, but the Roman military, right? The, uh, so they could do whatever they wanted. And if you were given a blank check to do whatever you wanted, and you're a sinner, which you are, your mind can instantly connect that I'm going to exploit this situation for myself. And that's what they did. So it's not that they just had a job. It's, ah, I guess someone's got to do the hard work and no one's going to like it. It's not that. Don't pity them. They're corrupt. They're wicked. They're morally uh, bankrupt. They were traitors seen by the countrymen to that extent, and they were oppressors. Literally, they oppressed their local neighbor peers because they collected more than they needed to. That's a tax collector. They were bad, and that's who Matthew was, right? He could levy taxes on all kinds of goods, all kinds of work, any trade that was taking his place, 
trades that were taking place, it didn't matter. As long as he got the minimum for Rome, they said, do whatever you want after that. So he generated a ton of wealth for himself, but he was hated, despised, considered the worst of all society. Couldn't go to a synagogue, couldn't worship, couldn't participate in leadership of their country. And the only people he could hang out with and spend time with were fellow tax collectors, and as we'll see tonight, sinners, the rest of society that didn't follow the traditions of Jews, the rabbinical laws. So all he had was his money, and all he had was his fellow sinners to hang out with and, and be with. Everybody else hated him. That was his life. That was his life. He would have been familiar with Jesus because of being in Capernaum and being a tax collector at the booth, not the guy that owned the franchise, but the one that did the work and collected all the money. He would have been in constant communication with everybody and, and would have known all the goings on. So he knew Jesus' ministry. He knew, the, he, he knew who had been called already. He knew what he was, his message was. He knew what his actions had been. All those things we reviewed, he was totally familiar with um, because he was very well informed. So, so he's sitting in his tax collector's booth, and Jesus sees him. What's his current spiritual state? Yes. Really bad. Really bad. Or, like all sinners, dead in the transgressions of their sin. <clears throat> Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Some of you may have that memorized. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too also lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That was his spiritual state, just like anybody else that hasn't repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ. That was his spiritual state. Um, that's, that's all he had to look forward to. But Jesus steps in, and he says two words. He says, follow me. I can expand on that a little bit. Jesus' command, being God, follow me, and Matthew already knowing his message, repentance and faith given, taken place, salvation is done. And that's the beautiful part. If I keep reading in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, this is where the good news of the gospel comes in. It starts with, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And that's what happened to Matthew. Jesus saw him sitting there in the tax collector's booth and says, follow me. It's a command that no one can deny and no one would deny. God just reached into his heart, changed it from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, and brought him to himself in salvation. Doctrinally, we call this election. He was elected unto salvation, right? He was saved. Um, there's, a really, there's a solid couple of verses in the New Testament that if you're wondering what is election, how do I see that? It's the effectual call, as some put it. It's the idea that anybody is raised from a dead spiritual state to a, a live spiritual state only through the work of Jesus Christ. You start off spiritually dead. Romans 8, chapter 30, it says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. You can see that path. That's God working. Matthew's right in there. Right? He was predestined. He was called. That's where we saw him. And then he was justified. That just happened. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, and that will happen. This happens because God makes it so. Man can't choose that on our own, and nor would you. Nor would you. You act according to your nature. If you're a sinner, and you're given over to your sin, and God hasn't called you out of your sin, and you haven't repented of your sins, then you're going to act according to your nature. And so you're going to do those sinful things. But when God acts... Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves... 
It is the gift of God when he acts and gives that to you, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. That happens. Salvation takes place. And that's what you just saw happen to Matthew. But we also need to see something that's really important that happens to Matthew. And it's, what was, what was his heart like in response? Because this is the effectual call. This is the right response to the gospel. When we look at verse 9, we keep going. He, he said, follow me. And then what did Matthew do? If you're looking at your Bibles at the end of verse 9, it'll say it to you. Or you can read it. You won't say it. You made eye contact. You got to do it now. Just read the end of verse 9. He rose and followed him. He did it. He obeyed. He rose and followed him. Right? He rose and followed. That's what he did. So, hey, what did he get up and leave? Yes. His job, source of income. So his job and source of income. Yes, that's one of the two right responses. Taylor. That is the overarching correct response but there's something specific on the qualifiable it's side the, no that's the quantifiable side Lawson which was um, a what type of a lifestyle say it. being a sinner being a sinner he left being enslaved to sin yes dishonest. and being dishonest and being corrupt and being immoral okay I, that, you guys are great but we got it we got the answer so um, but thank you very much he left both sides right it's easy when you look at that oh he left all of his money Oh, goodness, that's a lot of... He had so much. If you look at Zacchaeus' life, another tax collector, do you guys remember how much Zacchaeus gave away? Half of his wealth to the poor, and what number times to make restitution for all of the fraud? Four times as well. So, see, there's four there. Four times as well. I try to help. Okay, um, so think about all that. So you had all this money amassed. You defrauded all these people over all these years. But you can do four times back, 400% of what you defrauded back, and give half. I mean, listen, wow, that's a lot. But that's not the important part. The important part is he left his sinful lifestyle. Why? Because God had given him a whole new heart. Does someone know 2 Corinthians 5.17 by memory? Yes. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Oh, super high five for you. Nicely done. Yes, you're supposed to know that, but you could have read it. Yeah, so that's exactly what happened, right? The old is gone. Behold, new has come. Yes. So he's not just leaving his wealth. He is leaving his job, and since tax collectors had a minimum they needed to collect, for the Roman Empire, he's gonna have a bunch of Romans looking around like, where you, why are you not collecting your taxes anymore? That what was a potential doing? impact, right? He didn't own the franchise, so remember, he wasn't the head guy, but so maybe they just got an employee. God, Bible doesn't tell us what happened in that front, and no one came after Matthew. Maybe they, I don't know, we don't know. But that could be a possible risk. But the big point is he left his sin, right? And he followed Christ, he obeyed. <laughs> So you got to ask yourself this question. You don't have to. I'm going to ask you, ask you to ask yourselves this question. Matthew just left everything. Left his sin, left his lifestyle, totally changed everything, right? Old life gone, new is here, become. Totally different heart. He's obedient. He's, he's obedient. How's our obedience going? Like today, yesterday, this week, if you claim Christ as your Savior and Lord, you have to constantly examine yourself like, man, I... 
How have I treated my parents? Have I obeyed them? How, what about authorities at school? What about, have I loved my siblings the right way, my friends the right way? Have I been obeying Christ and am I knowing more about him through his word so that I can obey more? Or am I just kind of hanging out? Because if you claim Christ, and just like Matthew, whose heart just changed, then your heart's going to be different too. And God's calling you to obey. That is the effectual call, the positive reaction to the gospel we see in Matthew. Now we're going to move into the second part, which is the wrong or the error reaction to the gospel. And we're going to cover this in two parts. But first, 10 and 11, verses 10 and 11. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? So we've just transitioned from the road where we were. And in verse 10, Matthew has gathered a seemingly large amount of people to his house. Luke adds in chapter 529, which is the, uh, one of the corresponding records to this, that Levi, Matthew, gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. In our verse, the Greek word many means abundant. I don't know how many, but it was a lot. And who are these people, tax collectors and sinners? Tax collectors we've defined. But what about and sinners? Those were the rest in society that had the same place as the tax collectors did. They were cast out. They were despised. They were immoral. Does that mean that they're just like, that their sin just stands out more? Because everybody's a sinner? Mm. Solid question. In this context, Jesus is making a point between people that were living in their lawlessness just overtly, tax collectors and sinners, versus those that were self-righteous, Pharisees. And then also Matt, sinners. Also sinners. Well, we're all, everyone's a sinner, right? Romans 3.23 is everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we're all sinners. Jesus is making an overarching point to say, how do you respond to the gospel? Tax collectors and sinners are totally living their own sinful lives. They don't care what they look like. They're just doing what they want. Over. Pharisees, scribes, were putting all of their faith in self-righteousness, which we will see, to say, well, no, look at my, look at my shell. It's so nice and clean. Look, look at how the rules I follow. And they're trying to justify themselves. Good question, Joy. So that would just hit the sinners. So if you think of the word like drunkard, prostitute, uh, thief, the despised, the rest of all immoral society, those are the and sinners. People, other people that were just overtly disregarding God's law, disregarding the traditions of the, of the Pharisees, just doing whatever they wanted in their sin. That's who was at this dinner. When I looked at this, the first thought I had was kind of like where the Pharisees were. Like, well, why was Jesus spending an evening with that kind of a crowd? Right? Because your parents would tell you, don't go hang out with that kind of a crowd, right? Would they not? Hopefully, don't admit it. They said, go hang out with that kind of a bad idea, right? But you shouldn't go spend time with that. So we have to, well, what was Jesus' motive? What was happening? So let's walk through it. Take a closer look at what Jesus was doing. Who hosted the dinner? Matthew. Matthew did, right? What just happened to Matthew? He got saved. He got saved. Yes. Okay, so now you're a new believer. You're excited about Christ. Your life has totally shifted. And you invite everybody you know to come hear the one that brought the gospel to you, the one that saved you. That is what's happening. 
So Jesus isn't hanging out with socially just to be part of that. He's there on a mission. He's there to bring them the gospel call. Yes. Do you think that now that he was like, you know, like a Christian, do you think he was like seeing how much sin that he had been living in? And do you think that he was like trying to uh, like help his friends that he had when he was a sinner? Yeah. I think he saw his life had totally changed and he saw his savior right there. And he said, I have to tell all these people that I, saw, that I interact with, they have to hear this message. Just like it's transformed my life. That's what he did. That's what Jesus was doing. It wasn't just a hangout session. Oh, look, a house. They're having food. I hang out. It, no. It was a purposeful mission dinner. His new disciple brought all these people together, and Jesus was there purposely ministering them to tell them of repentance and faith through the gospel. They wanted to hear what Jesus was saying. And Jesus was there to tell them. So ask yourself, the scenarios around you, right? Not go and be part of sinful situations thinking I'm going to rub off on them. That is not what Jesus is doing. But see the scenarios around you, the people that you uh, are in, or, or at school or after dinner activities or whatever. How can you be purposeful to turn those into opportunities to share who Jesus is, how he's impacted your life? Big question, not not even an answer. But, but I yes. have something okay. on that. But don't, Jesus is different than other people. So Jesus, you you will still you can still be affected by that. So don't just go rushing into it like a giant party. Correct. Even though if even if you're going to try and share the gospel, you're not going to do that. You're still going to be affected because Jesus wasn't affected by those people, and you will be. So yeah, be careful. I mean, one Jesus is God, right? Um, and although God and man tempted in every way that man is yet without sin, right? You do not be unwise. If you're going to practice that in wisdom, like, would you go to the big party where all the bad stuff's going to happen and think, I'm going to share the gospel? That would be unwise. But would you know the people that were there that, hey, maybe you have a math class or you're on the same sports team with? And would you build a relationship with them where you could share the gospel? Yes. Be purposeful is the point. Jesus was purposeful. You could be purposeful in your evangelism. Like, how does this impact our desire to share? Matthew was like, get in my house. You have to hear what my Savior says. How does that impact you? Dusty just gave us a lot of good hints on Sunday. I know I'm asking you to think back. Four days. It's hard. Four days. The sermon was on something that starts with E and ends with evangelism. Nice. You nailed it. Okay, so evangelism. And he gave us some pointers on what we needed to be doing as we think about sharing the gospel with someone. First, you have to be a Christian. You have to have yourself seen your sin as God sees it. Something that will be judged, totally offensive, deserving of hell. That is what sin is. You've missed the mark. God, who created everything, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is his and all it contains, the whole world and all who dwell in it. He gets to make the rules. He made them. And he said in Matthew 5, 48, we talked about already, which is, you shall be per perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's the standard. No one meets that. Jesus is the only man that met it, which is why he can be the good news, our perfect sacrifice, our perfect atonement, our perfect Savior. If that is true for you, then you start thinking, how can I get other people that I love to hear this? And that's where Dusty shared a couple good ideas. One idea, the idea of gospel-mindedness, sharing the gospel-mindedness, is you have to think about it every day. Start your day with it. I love the Lord. 
how can I tell other people about them? And be mindful about that. And then pray about the people that you're going to interact with so that they would respond to the gospel and you have an opportunity to share it. If that's not your recurring habit, it's going to be really hard to find opportunities to share the gospel because you won't be looking for them. It literally would have to take someone to hold on your arm and go, hey, will you tell me about Jesus? Because you wear that Jesus shirt, which could happen. But that's not someone being proactive to do it. And then he gave a couple of ideas about, hey, how do you turn the conversation to the gospel? Did he say be really mean, aggressive, and rude? No. No, he did not. You were listening to a different sermon that day. No, he did not. Right? He used a specific word. You should be what to someone? It's hard to remember that one. It starts with K and ends with Eind. Kind. You should be kind and loving of your neighbor, right? So that you can then build a relationship, not attacking them, but looking for natural opportunities to bring up the gospel. One of the most is if we are Christ's followers, we will say things that Christ's followers say. When something happens, you're outside. Oh, this is, this is, this happens. It's hard for me to do. I try my best at work. Everything on a Monday. What does someone ask you on a Monday? Crushed it. Brandon just nailed it. That. How was your weekend? Does that question happen to you? Hey, what'd you do this weekend? It's Monday. What do we do? You know? What's something that happened to you this weekend that is a natural opportunity to talk about Christ? I watch TV. That is not it. Church. I went to church. My pastor talked about evangelism. If you're looking for a door, that's like huge. Go through it, right? I mean, seriously, be a, a, someone who talks about Christ around the people, because that's who you are. If you're a Christian, you would talk like Christ. That's my encouragement to you. If there's something you're praising God for because you're like, wow, that was amazing. Someone tells you about a really hard thing in their life and then it got better, praise the Lord. You would say, praise the Lord. If you're so hip or colloquial to PTL and they ask you what that means, you can't. I never could get into that. It's praise the Lord. Some people, I'm not judging it. I just, I just, I couldn't get there. I think it's because I'm old. Right? And then a couple questions that you might ask someone. Hey, do you go to church somewhere? What's that like? Would you like to come to church with me? That's how I got saved. Literally. A buddy of mine in high school, we were 16. He said, you want to come to church with me on Wednesday? My friends are cool. I said, Sure. That's how I got in. Just you like that. Did you almost chicken out at the last minute? I don't remember. That was a long time ago. I just remember going. My friends are cool. And his friends are cool. Okay. Um, why not? Was this Drew Irvin that told you? No, I'm, I'm the older brother of the adoptive pair. So he was not thinking about friends in high school when I was in high school. We nearly walked into that yeah. one. Yeah, that's all right. That's all right. But just consider that. There's some tips. There's some ideas. The biggest one that I would leave you with on that topic of sharing the gospel is, one, pray about your, your scenarios in life that are common to you. Right? Again, to Fox's point, don't go run into the parties. That's not what Jesus was doing. He was being purposeful as he was invited to dinner. Um, turn the conversation intentionally, but with kindness. Speak like a Christian. Love the Lord. And you'll have many opportunities to share. You have many opportunities to share. So that's what the question, we ask that question naturally out of curiosity. The Pharisees asked it out of a totally different attitude. In verses 10, they said, in verse 10, they said, why is Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Why is your, why is your Lord eating with the tax collectors and sinners? And, and um, they asked it full of dripping sarcasm, not because they were curious, like, oh, that's an interesting thing to know. They, they're looking for a way to take him down. They're looking for a way to denounce his ministry 
Why? Because they run into this Jesus before. And what happens every time the Pharisees run into Jesus? He makes them look like fools. Because they are being foolish, not because he's mean. See, I mean, see, that's an important distinction, right? He's not being crude or mean or angry. He is, he, yeah, he is speaking the truth, and they are not in truth. And so they do look foolish. That is what happens. That is what's happening with the Pharisees when they get there. Blueletterbible.org, I think, is the website. Defines a great one for doing word, word uh, uh, exposition of the, of the Bible. I go there all the time. It, this is how it defines the Pharisees. A sect that seems to have started after the Jewish exile. In addition to Old Testament books, the Pharisees recognized oral tradition, a standard of belief in life. They sought for distinction and praise by outward observance of external rites and by outward forms of piety. Ceremonial washings, fastings, prayers, almsgiving. And they prided themselves on their fancy good works. And their whole hope was that when the Messiah comes, he would recognize all of that external righteousness and give them credit for it. Uh, which he tells them all the time. He gave them many fair warnings, many fair warnings. And Ma speaking of fair warnings, in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 to 7, this is how Jesus describes the Pharisees. He spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. When they were quoting the Old Testament law, they were right. So you should do it. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they brought in their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. The rest of chapter 23, he gives them seven woes. Every single woe is followed by hypocrites. That's, in truth, who they were. They had missed the mark. They had exchanged the righteousness of God, the oracles that had been given to them through the Old Testament, for lies. That's who they were. And they were out to get Jesus because he was speaking the truth and taken away from their authority and power. So they were watching Jesus, not because they're interested, but because they're waiting to see if they can catch him doing something that they could say, see, that's wrong. In Matthew eleven nineteen, this is what the Pharisees are saying. They're saying, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. They're trying to take him down. That was their whole purpose. It could be that they were invited to that banquet. More likely, though, since the audience was totally appalling to them, right? Tax collectors and sinners, who would ever go there? Uh, most likely, they were waiting outside. I don't know if they waited the whole time or if they just approached the disciples with their question at the end of dinner. I have no idea. No one knows. But they were waiting there to see what would happen. And they asked, why would Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? They didn't ask Jesus. Who did they ask? His disciples. His disciples. You have to ask yourself the question, why wouldn't they just go to the source? Because every time they go to the source... He tells them the truth, and because they're not in the truth, they look foolish. I wouldn't go beat my head against that wall repeatedly either. But they ask the disciples. Their presumptions when they ask the question is, we already looked at this, tax collectors and sinners are people you shouldn't be around. They don't follow our rules. They're not doing traditional Jews. So really, it's sinful in their mind to spend time with them because righteousness in our society is defined by all the external acts. So hanging out with Sinful people would not be part of the following the rules. And they do that all the time. And that's what they're looking for. Those are their presumptions because that's what they see as what is 
right. But what we're going to see in verses 12 and 13 is Jesus' response and, again, their, his correction of their errant thought. This is what verse 12 to 13 says. It says, but when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So we see three examples of how he corrects them. The first one is the error of their self-righteousness, what they're thinking. It's the idea of, the, the, um, it's, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Right? They're saying that, hey, you're the physician. You should have come to us, the righteous ones. Jesus, with logic, says, hold on. If we're using the doctor analogy, where do the doctors go? To the sick people, because they're the ones that need the doctor. Right? They don't go to the healthy people going, yo, still doing well. Well done. No. So with you said to make money. But that's not in this analogy. That's in the current state. So if we do it in time where they were, um, that particular comment doesn't apply. So he directly points to their heart, their error. By logic, he says that they, if you believe that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to draw the righteous to himself because of who they are and how they've justified themselves to their actions, you're wrong. That's not the truth. That's not what God says God said and Jesus said in Matthew 5:20 he said for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees you will not enter the kingdom of heaven think about it your whole life as a Pharisee has been built up trained lived followed every single rule so that no man can tell you you missed something and Jesus comes and says actually if you want to get into heaven you have to do more than that that, that is a sour bit of truth to accept if you put yourself in the mind of a Pharisee. And so that's why they were looking to attack him. And that's why Jesus corrects their arrows. It's not the healthy that need a physician, but it's the sick. In this example, the healthy would be the self-righteous and the sick would be sinners who are ready to hear the gospel. So where is Jesus going to go? We saw it, the tax collectors and the sinners. And they saw Jesus spending time with the immoral, corrupt, sinful people, and they wanted to judge him for it because it wasn't what they thought was right. Hint, hint. Anytime you think, I think this is right, but God says something different, you should align with what God says. The Pharisees missed that. It's a good hint. Um, so another point of application for you to think about that. Healthy, sick, where should I align? Consider the standards that you hold yourself to and you hold others to. Are you using scripture as your standard? Or are you thinking, well, my righteousness says, this is what I think is right. Um, consider what scripture says and follow, follow suit. Especially in the sense of having compassion towards others and loving others. Matthew 5, says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's a pretty extreme standard. You're gonna love your neighbor, even the one that's not the nice neighbor. Even the one that is actually aggressive, like against you, neighbor, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is the definition of compassion. And that's where we're going next. In verse 13, he says, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. So put yourself in the Pharisee's shoes again. You have studied your entire life to know everything that you know. You're an expert in a topic. You've been given a research paper by your teacher. It has to be something that you had like three doctorates in. Spent your whole lifetime studying. You are the expert. 
And then someone comes from outside your university who with authority, you can't argue with it, is smarter than you in that subject. And they say to you, go and learn this subject that you have three doctorates in. Another bitter pill to swallow. And that's what he says. He says, go and learn what this means. In general, you might think, oh yeah, innocent enough command, go do research. Not in this sense. It was painful rebuke because they are supposed to know. And we know that because we can go to the Old Testament and see what they knew. This idea of compassion, this idea of mercy. When he says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, he's quoting Hosea 6, 6, Old Testament, minor prophet. They knew this stuff by heart. Hosea 6, 6 says, for I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I delight in loyalty, compassion rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In Micah 6, 6 to 8, again, they would have known this. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, in verse 8, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? They knew what God's word said, and they exchanged it for a system that they could do their own works. And that's why they're getting rebuked. That's why Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Does it mean that the sacrificial system was wrong? You say no. Why do you say no? There's an easy answer, and it starts with because the word says so. Because God's word says it's not. You could use that one. Okay, I think she chose. I just want to make it easy. I, I, I realize it's a tougher question. Um, it's not wrong. What was the sacrificial system built to do? Yes. Atone for man's sin for a little while. Because it was looking forward to Christ. a final atonement. Who was the final atonement? Christ. Christ's sacrifice and blood was the final atonement on the cross. So, but what they didn't want is don't justify yourself because you sacrificed five oxen. Or how, you know, as Micah put it, 10,000 rivers of oil were given to the temple. Don't, that doesn't justify you before God. Compassion is a heart that looks like that. What does God, oh man, what is good? What does he require? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? And then the last correction that Jesus gives them is, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's the clearest he had been. He gave them a logical example. Doctors, where do they go? They go to the sick, not the healthy. What does God's instruction word say? I desire compassion. That's the heart I'm looking for. Not one that is trying to justify itself through acts. And he says very clearly, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In Luke, he adds, to repentance. That's what his mission was. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Joy, to your question earlier about sinners, this is talking about the gospel call going out generally to the world. The people that are going to respond are the repentant, the ones that have humble hearts before the Lord that see their sin. The self-righteous will not unless God decides to act in their lives and cause them to have that repentant heart. That's how that happens. Nothing externally we do justifies ourselves before God. And Luke 18, everybody turn to this. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. In verses 9 to 14, we see a really clear example of what Jesus means if I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is what it says. 
It says he also told this parable to some people. How does he describe them? That they were okay. We are not talking to people. That's who we're talking to. That's who Jesus is talking to. And they viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We looked at Matthew's call. He responded in humility. He gave up everything and responded to the call of the gospel. But the Pharisees and everybody that's self-righteous, that exalts themselves, they don't respond to the gospel. That's not a repentant heart. That's not what's going on there. So you have to ask yourself this question, or I encourage you to. What makes up the core of your life? If you examine your heart, are you operating underneath the gospel of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? You've repented of your sins? You walk in obedience to his word? Or are you living a shell life where you go to church and you hang out with your church friends and you hang out with your church family and your parents take you and you experience all those things and you assign because of tradition and happenstance Hey, I've got to be good because I go there and I do all those things. The difference between Christianity and a word I've coined as I thought about this lesson, churchianity. You know, I'm sure someone else said it before me, but it happened in my brain. You have to ask yourself that question. So in closing, we looked at a few things. The effective call of Matthew. He obeyed. He had a humble, repentant heart, and he obeyed as God saved him. And we looked at the error of the Pharisees and how Jesus corrected that. They were self-righteous. They were not repentant, looking to receive uh, salvation for their sins. They were trying to justify themselves by their actions. And Jesus clearly, clearly shows them the truth and in light of their error. So the bottom line is this, just like where we started. Salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. And the way you know is it always produces a contrite, repentant heart that yields obedient fruit every single time. Remember, God desires compassion, mercy, not sacrifice. This is who Matthew was. This is look like your life. Go ahead and pray with me. Lord, we are thankful that we can have such a clear testimony of the truth in your word all the time that tells us exactly what we need to do, how we need to think, how we need to feel um, to live in accordance to your will. Thank you so much, more so than anything, of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. Because on our own, we would just choose to justify ourselves if we wanted to, like the self-righteous, or not even care like the sinners. Um, Lord, give us hearts of compassion and mercy and to walk humbly before you. Please sing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Drew.